You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Um, we're going to take a few weeks. We're, we're jumping into our summer series in just a couple weeks. But before we do that, we're going to take a couple weeks and we're going to go back and we're going to catch up some of our... I think I broke my... There we go. There it is. We're going to go back and we're going to make up some of our snow days. We had a couple snow days this year and we missed a couple sections in Mark. And as we went back and just kind of looked at those texts, I just honestly, I, wa- I wanted us to get to experience them. So we're going to take this week and next week and catch up um, on some snow days. And then after that, Pastor Craig is going to introduce us to a couple of the minor prophets. We're going to spend our summer majoring on the minors. I had to make that pun at least once. <laughs> That's the last time I'll say it. That's a total lie. <laughs> uh, we're going to go through Malachi and Habakkuk and Jonah. It's going to be a really cool summer, um, even already just ramping up, reading through some of the material connected to these texts. I think it's going to be cool. But today we are in Mark. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. We would love for you to snag one of those. We think it's really important at Red Tree for every person to have access to the Word of God. And so, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, I would encourage you just to snag that and take it home. And in fact, I would encourage you beyond that to talk to one of our pastors and we'll give you one that's nicer than that one. But um, so we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 35. In the 35th verse of the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Mark, we hear this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to him, and and to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we want to meet with you this morning. God, we have just stood or sat singing the truth of the gospel, declaring, proclaiming your power to set captives free, the power of your blood to wash away sin. God, we don't want that to be 
empty theology for us. We don't want that to be just words in a song. We want to meet you. We want to know you. We want our faith to be to be genuine and real, not, not a hobby, not a mental or philosophical inheritance from our family, our culture. We want to know you. Like we know friends. So we ask that today you would meet us in this space. Meet us in this text. Holy Spirit, I pray you would illuminate your text to us. That you would take this teaching of Jesus, that you would cast a bright spotlight on it. That you would sharpen it. That it may cut us to the quick. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Draw us to repentance. Draw us to dependence on you today. We love you, Jesus, and we trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. So, I want to take a few minutes and put us back in this story. I know you guys are like all revved up to be done, right? We got to the end. We, we hit the climax of the story. We got to the good part. But I want to take a few minutes to get us back in the meat of this story. And we'll, we'll point out kind of the historical context around what's going on here. Ultimately, this is going to lead us to Jesus' teaching on discipleship out of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to end our time in the Psalms. So, here's where we're at. This is during the Passion Week. Jesus has finished, as it were, his ministry in Galilee. He has made his way to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has already happened, and this is early on in the Passion Week. Jesus has entered into the temple in Jerusalem and is in the process of casting his judgment on the temple worship. He spends all of this chapter theologically and verbally sparring with the religious leaders and authorities of his day in the temple. This is the climax of that battle. The best modern analogy, and it falls a million times short, is that as Jesus is sparring with these guys and working through doctrine and, trying, and then they're kind of trying to like outwit him and trap him theologically and verbally, it is similar to like a modern day rap battle. Like these dudes are coming at Jesus, trying to pin him in a corner, trying to publicly shame him. And Jesus is obviously God. He is a master. He is he's the best interpreter of scripture because he wrote it. And so he is just schooling these guys one by one, making his way through the different religious authorities within the temple. And with each one, he is casting his judgment upon what is lacking in their theology and their practice and how it has destructively affected God's people. You see, this scene is really important in Mark as a whole. The temple is the place in the Old Covenant where God makes his dwelling and creates a connection between perfection and eternity and flesh and blood and sin. In, in the old covenant, the temple is the dwelling place of God amongst his people. You want to know God, you want to commune with him, then you come to the temple and you worship. And God has outlined in the old covenant ways by which you may be made right with him through the temple. 
right? You go back, you read Leviticus. I know that's you guys' favorite book when you get to it in your personal devotion. And he outlines all these weird sacrifices of cut this up and take its liver out and make sure you peel the fat off the liver and do this and do that. But if you look at each of those sacrifices, almost every single one ends with, and your sins will be forgiven. And there will be propitiation made for you. God has outlined how his people might come before him in purity, how they might commune with him, how they might build relationship. In the old covenant, the temple is the most important place in the entire planet. And now God himself enters the temple and says, you have failed miserably. And he holds the leaders, the stewards of his temple to account for their sin and their injustice against his people. And he makes his way through the list. He starts by a general challenge with the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council, the Supreme Court, 70 religious and political leaders over the Jewish people. He spars with them. He finds them lacking. He moves on and he engages with the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are two essentially what we would call political parties, although in Jesus' day, politics and religion were the same thing. I know, how would you even talk about anything at Thanksgiving, right? I guess Passover. He spars with the Pharisees and the Herodians who made an unlikely alliance because you see, the Pharisees represented the group of people who were the most socially conservative and the most theologically liberal. Now, we don't have a mental category for that because in our culture, if you're theologically liberal, you're socially liberal, right? They, they go hand in hand. But in Jesus' day, you have the Pharisees who are theologically liberal. They hold on to added teachings, the traditions of the fathers and the rabbis. They, they look at the larger testimony of the Torah plus the Old Testament plus the Talmud, the commentaries, and they have built an extensive extra-biblical system of living that is incredibly disciplined and conservative. So they say, man, what we have in the Old Testament is not good enough. If we want to restore relationship with God, we've got to up the ante. So you need to live not just like this, but like this. They're partnering with the Herodians, who are the most theologically and socially liberal of the groups, a group of people who have essentially assented to Roman rule and said, Roman rule is our salvation. You see, the Pharisees are hoping that pious religious living will bring about God's blessing and freedom from Roman oppression. The Herodians are saying, Roman oppression is not oppression. It is God's freedom and deliverance for our people. By bringing in people like Herod, who is both Jewish and Roman, we are being brought into the modern world. We are modernizing our culture, and it will allow Israel to survive in a way that is contextual for us. So Jesus goes to bat with them, and he finds them lacking. And then he moves on to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are the socially progressive, but theologically conservative. So the opposite of the Pharisees. They hold to no extra-biblical teaching. They say you should add nothing to God's revelation, no commentary, no Talmud. And so they take the Old Testament very literally. And it actually, strangely and ironically, led them to a place of materialism, where they rejected any teaching of the supernatural, any teaching concerning angels and demons, any teaching concerning the resurrection or the afterlife. 
And so they end up in this place that's very theologically conservative, sola scriptura in Jesus' day. And yet it leads them to a place of capitulation to Roman occupation because they end up essentially in control of the temple worship. The Pharisees have their main authority in the realm of the synagogue. They are the people's party. The Herodians have their authority in the courtroom. They are uh, in bed with the Romans, and the Sadducees have their authority in the temple. They control what happens in the temple. They are the incredibly educated, formally educated. Many of them are incredibly wealthy. They get a lot of money from the money that comes into the temple. Jesus goes to bat with the Sadducees, and he finds them lacking. And then we have this story where a scribe challenges Jesus. This is kind of the final of these parties. And the scribe is a unique role in the temple worship and in the Jewish people. The scribes were the academics. These were the dudes who had their PhDs. They had gone to school and they had learned a lot of theology. And they did practical things. They could write. And so they could preserve the Holy Scriptures and disseminate them out to synagogues and things of that nature. But more than that, they were the ones who were giving academic comment on the Old Testament. Not necessarily theological or devotional comment, like many of the Pharisees were, but, but they were studying the texts. These are the academics. They were considered the smartest of the groups. And they were spread out, but most of their power was in Jerusalem and centered around the temple. The interesting thing about the scribes is that the Pharisees, those who were, we would say, vocational, were able to gain money from the worship and the giving in the synagogues. And the Sadducees, many of whom were Levites, were able to gain their living from the giving that happened in the temple. But the scribes were not a biblical connection office. They were just dudes who were really smart. And almost all of them lived on fundraising. (laughs) If they could convince people that their studies and their work was important... People would give to it, and they would live off of it. And so the scribes are an interesting class because they were some of the most honored and revered of Jewish people in this day. Jesus talks about that in our text. But most of them were pretty poor. Unless they had found some benefactor or some way of getting a lot of money, most of them lived very simple lives, but were very honored and revered. So a scribe comes to Jesus and he challenges him on a minute point of the law, right? What is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus goes to spar with this scribe. And there's this really interesting piece where up to this point, he's been like, you're wrong. You are a fool. You don't understand the scriptures. Get out of here. Go home to your mother. And when he gets to the scribe, he goes, "Ooh, you're close. That's interesting. He goes, you're close. But... Jesus is still here to cast judgment on the system that the scribes as a whole are perpetrating. So even though he wants to encourage, he's left in this awkward position, he wants to encourage this individual scribe who is actually searching the scriptures and has actually gleaned some of the, what the Spirit is leading and what is happening in the kingdom. He wants to encourage this guy, but he also wants to blast the scribes. He doesn't want to have anyone mistake that he's come in here to prove everyone else wrong and then just align himself with the scribes. So even though this scribe brings this question and they go back and forth and Jesus goes, you're close. And at that point, 
Everyone is so intimidated by Jesus' ability to engage in this stuff that it says no one wants to question him anymore. Everyone's too intimidated, impressed, angry to say anything. And so Jesus takes it on the offense. He encourages this individual scribe, and then he goes, yeah, but let me go ahead and put the scribes in general on blast for a minute. And so he pulls out this scripture from the Psalms, where he says, hey, you guys interpret this text this way. What's your deal? And we don't necessarily understand that really quick, but, but Jesus is, is citing Psalm 110 here. How can a scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This, by the way, this is just a weird little Bible trivia thing, but it's, it's actually uh, kind of important here. Psalm 110 is, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which is interesting. But Psalm 110, Jesus references it here, and he critiques an established hermeneutic that the scribes have put in place, an established interpretation or understanding of this text. Jesus says, in general, the scribes say this, that Psalm 110 is a messianic prophecy, that David in the Holy Spirit is declaring the coming of the Messiah. But how is that possible? Now, again, I'm not going to camp here super long, so you're going to have to trust me on some of this stuff, but if you go back and read Psalm 110, which we will at the end, if you go back and read Psalm 110, it's a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that would have been read or sung at the anointing and installation of a new king. And so when he says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's actually saying, Yahweh says to Adonai. And he's actually saying, God is saying to the king. But as kind of theology progressed, and as especially as the kingship was destroyed when Israel fell, and when then later the southern kingdom fell, this psalm was, it began to be understood in a messianic context. That, that the king is not actually the king, he's the Messiah, the coming king who will free Israel. And you have to remember, at this point, we're talking about Roman oppressed Palestine. These are Jewish people who are living under direct pagan political oppression. They are waiting for the coming Messiah. And their understanding of Messiah is that he will be the son of David. Literally, right? Genetically. But he will, be, he will come in the image of David. He will be a warrior king who unites the people and unites the kingdom. And God will bring back the lost tribes as they are scattered around the world. And they will rise up in power and throw off their oppressors. And Israel will be established again as a powerful kingdom through whom God can make himself known to the world. This is the messianic expectation of their day. And so Jesus says, now, you guys say Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. How does that work? If David says in the Holy Spirit, if he's prophesying in the Spirit, that the Lord says to my Lord, and that's, that's, God, that's, that's speaking about the Messiah, then how can David call the Messiah my Lord if he's his son? Because that's not how it works. If he's his son, he would be the Lord over the Messiah. The Messiah would be in his image. He would be under his authority. David would be the greater, and the Messiah would be his legacy. That doesn't work. And everyone's kind of like, huh, yeah, 
That doesn't work. And for us, we're kind of like, uh, is, is that really a major point like, to argue? It really is. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the Messiah will be the son of David, but not in the way you think. Because David himself is not, is not, the, like, he's not the perfect image of what the Messiah will be. The, the Messiah will not be an image of David. David is a foreshadowing of what is to come. The Messiah will not be under him as a son, as a descendant. No, 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 no. The Messiah is coming in the image of God. Messiah is the son of God. Son of David is just an analogy that helps you understand that God is coming in the flesh to save his people. So Jesus is making a very important theological point here that's lost for us because we're just not super concerned about the Messiah coming and freeing Israel from Rome, right? So he makes this point, which speaks to the larger flow of what Mark is teaching. Jesus is the Son of God. Go back to Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the primary theological assertion of the entire gospel of Mark. Messiah is not what you think it is. It is about God's Son reigning over His creation. So Jesus affirms this by picking apart the, the, the understanding of this text from this group of academics. Which is brilliant, by the way, that a random rabbi from the boot hill would come and tell the academics that they got it wrong. The fact that he challenges the scribes is amazing. The fact that he challenges them on biblical interpretation and then challenges them so well they shut up and take it is amazing. <laughs> so he, he, find, he shows the scribes as lacking. Man, you guys are super smart. You missed this one. And everyone's kind of like, dang. And everyone in the room goes, I like this guy. I want to hear more of this. Tell us other stuff the scribes got wrong. And then Jesus goes into this text. I'm going to reread this starting in verse 38. In this teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Man. See, what Jesus does here is he transitions from critiquing their theology to critiquing their practice. See, the scribes were known as the theologians. They were smart. They were educated. They understood what God was doing and how he had revealed himself. And Jesus says, well, first your premise is wrong because you don't understand what God is saying. But second off, even if you did, nothing in your life shows that. See, Jesus is connecting here the idea of our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, our beliefs and our actions. See, I, I, I want to say this clearly, and we're going to say this a couple times. What Jesus is saying here is you can't have amazing theology and rotten fruit at the same time. Amen. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. If the fruit of your life stinks, then something in your theology is off. You can't simply know all the right stuff 
in assent intellectually to factual statements and then live however the heck you want to live. Jesus is grabbing hold of that here. And he calls out these scribes and their hypocrisy. He says, man, man, you guys really, really love how much people love you, don't you? You love to put on your long robes, your academic robes, your uniform, so that people know who you are. You love when you walk out in public and people defer to you and say, oh, scribe, oh, teacher, oh, rabbi, it's so good to see you. Please come. You love that seat of honor. You love when they, when they get up in the front pew and give you the front seat and invite you up so everyone can see you sitting up at the front, right up close to the scrolls, and maybe you even wrote a couple of them. You love that. You love all that stuff. You also love stealing from widows. He just goes right into it. Remember, these are men who live off fundraising. These are men who have to convince some person of wealth to give financially to support their ministry. They need benefactors. So Jesus says, and you love all the honor you get as a scribe. What about some of them widows you've convinced to, to pay for that for you? Destroyed their lives. How about that? That's pretty intense, right? You offer these long prayers so that you sound super spiritual. See, Jesus is getting at the heart of their hypocrisy. And we can understand that historically, right? I imagine that, that, that it's not terribly hard for us to contextualize this to the way some spiritual leaders in our day manipulate people into financial support, right? I imagine Jesus might have similar words to speak to some of the famous evangelists in our culture and in places like Africa, Central Africa. It's easy for us to kind of wrap our heads around that. But I'll tell you, it's also really easy for us to hear that hypocrisy and be like, yeah, man, those dudes are dirtbags. They sound terrible. And then move on. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. Because he ends out this text by going and watching the people give their tithes and offerings. And by the way, this is the capstone to this whole chapter and Jesus' critique of all of these religious leaders and all of their hypocrisy. He ends out the scene by he goes and he watches the people giving. Now, there would be a bunch of these boxes with essentially like what looks like a tuba or a shofar, a big old brass horn sticking off it. And people would drop their money in and it would tinkle as it goes down the horn. And he sets the scene where Jesus is just people watching while the people are giving. Which, by the way, in and of itself, that's just amazing to me because we have such a weird social stigma on knowing about people's finances in our culture. To imagine like one of the, one, one of the pastors going out and just standing by the giving box while you guys are putting envelopes in going, interesting, cool, yeah, all right. Craig? <laughs> but Jesus goes and he sits and he watches the people giving. And we're presented to this scene where wealthy people are coming in with their large bags of gold and dropping them in. And and it goes down in the box and they walk out and everyone's like, oh, cool, cool, cool. And then Jesus calls the attention of his disciples to this widow, this poor widow, who comes and gives two copper 
coins. And Mark goes out of his way to let us know that these are the least valuable Roman coins that exist. This would be the American equivalent of saying, she dropped two pips in the giving box. Does anyone in the room know what a pip is? Anyone? Yes. Old plastic tenth of a penny. Talk to a coin collector about them. Um, drops two, two little copper coins in the least valuable coin there is. And Jesus says, now look at that. And he calls everyone's attention. Come here, come here, come here, check this out. Look at that. And you can imagine his followers being like, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, she gave more than everyone else. She gave more than everyone else. And everyone's like, eh, no, she didn't. <laughs> she gave like two pennies. <laughs> and Jesus goes, see, everyone else, everyone else gave out of their abundance. But she gave out of her poverty all that she had to live on. <clears throat> now we got we to gotta sit with that for a minute we got to think about that for a minute. You see, Jesus is saying a couple things here. First and foremost, he's saying that a gift is not measured by the amount. It's measured by the cost to the giver. We need to think about that. I'm sure there are people on the finance team right now who are just like dying for me to tell you something about giving at Red Tree, and I'm not going to. Because as much as this might be a bummer, that's not what this is about. Financial giving is a piece of this. Jesus uses it as the analogy for what he's teaching. But this is a much more fundamental truth about the kingdom of God and the cost of discipleship. It is much bigger, and by the way, much more painful to our persons than simply the discipline of giving. You guys, by the way, if you're believers, I'm not even talking about if you're members at Red Tree and this is where you've committed to tie your heart and to give. You should genuinely reflect on what it means for you to give sacrificially. You really should. There are a lot of people in this room for whom the tithe, the 10%, is actually probably really painful and might even be too much for you to give. But there's a whole stinking lot of you that love to hang out at a tithe because it's easy and you don't notice it. And, and Jesus talks about that. Your giving should be sacrificial. It should cost you something. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this larger kingdom principle. You see, she didn't just give a lot of money till it hurt. She gave everything she had to live on. This isn't about she sat down and said, well, 10% is going to be a big deal. This. No, 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 no. This lady closed her checking account. This lady cleared out the piggy bank and gave every penny she had to live on. This is grocery money and rent money. Feed your kids money. Think about tomorrow money. She gave all of it, Jesus says. She gave everything. That's intense. Imagine me making that into a tithing message. <laughs> she gave everything she had to live on. See, the other people... They give out of their abundance. And yeah, you know what? That helps the church. That blesses the church. But it doesn't cost them anything. 
You know, there's this amazing interview with Bill Gates where someone is commenting on the number of dollars he's given to like different charities and stuff over the years. And he just goes, and they say something about like, you know, you're one of the most prolific, generous persons in human history and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, that doesn't mean anything. He goes, I, I, I don't even feel that. I don't even notice that stuff. The people you should think about are the college kids that are eating ramen and still giving to the stuff they care about. And that's important to know. Man, if, you, if, you, if you're pulling in $10 million a year and you drop 100000 into the giving plate, it feels pretty good for the church, but you probably didn't feel it all that much. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus points out this idea where he says, you know, they give out of their abundance. And that makes the gift lesser because it didn't cost them anything. But she gave out of her poverty and she gave everything with no consideration for herself. Now put this in the context of these religious leaders. Jesus has essentially been saying for this whole chapter to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, to the Herodians, to the Sadducees, and to the scribes, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Why are you leading this? What, what, What are you? You're doing this for you. This makes your life better. See, Jesus calls them out because their worship is not of God, it is of themselves. They have co-opted the temple of God for self-worship. And Jesus says that is unacceptable. It's not how it works. You don't get to grab onto religiosity when it's convenient and furthers your personal agenda. That is not how the kingdom of God works. You don't get to choose to say yes to this and that spiritual principle because it feels good and makes your life more comfortable. That is not how it works. You don't get to hide your hypocritical and sinful evil acts under a public pretense of religiosity. That is not how it works. This is not the kingdom, Jesus says. He says the kingdom isn't the one who gives all they have without consideration for themselves or the future. Turn with me to Luke 14. Starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, While the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So therefore, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Listen up, church. We got to deal with this. We got to deal with this. Most of us, if we are honest, have a long history of engagement with the church. It has become a normative piece of our cultural understanding of the world. Right? We understand how this thing works. We understand what we do with our Sunday morning and our midweek small group. We understand how, how we're supposed to engage this stuff. And it's valuable to us for whatever reason. And we could pick apart the reasons if we had time. We could talk about the fact that it is spiritually satisfying to come and hear the word. To come and learn more. To delve into theology and doctrine. To sit with like-minded people and affirm similar truths psychologically and spiritually rewarding. To come and confess our weakness and be honest when we're hurting and and have others come around us with comfort and love and engagement. It's cathartic and rewarding. We could talk about the social pressures of engaging in family traditions, and social traditions. But it is worth asking the question, why on earth you are here right now? It's a gorgeous day in May. It is Sunday morning. And we are sitting in a middle school auditorium and you are listening to me talk for 40 minutes. Why is this rewarding to you? Why have you chosen to be here? What do you get out of this? <laughs> Might be a way to ask it. And if we're honest, we get a lot out of it. All that stuff I listed and more. It is cathartic. It is socially rewarding. Allows us to feel inclusion, connection, safety, forgiveness, joy, hope. It's very personally rewarding. And one might even argue that is part of the purpose. Who the sun sets free, he is free indeed. That should be psychologically and spiritually rewarding. We are offered freedom and redemption from a dead and sinful world. That is worthy of our joy and our celebration. We should want to be here. Absolutely. Yes and amen. Come on. But let's also be honest enough to acknowledge that we could come here for all those little pieces of feel good and have it have nothing to do with the person and work of Jesus. That we can still check all those boxes of social inclusion and comfort in times of hurting and having a tribe that we connect to and, and being challenged and giving feel-good lessons to live a more disciplined life. We could engage that by simply saying the right phrases. Listen, Lane's been here long enough. We all know when we're supposed to raise our hand during a song. Right? We could engage in all this complete and total empty religiosity and we could find some reward in it. I'm not saying this to be mean to me. I'm not saying this to make you doubt 
yourself and be all bothered and, and have some weird existential crisis in your faith. But I am saying this to go, we've got to deal with what Jesus says here. Because self-serving, empty religiosity is not the kingdom and it's not acceptable. Jesus stands in judgment over those people. The phrase he uses, they will receive the greater condemnation. Church, that should give you some shivers. Because you are the religious establishment in 2019. And I guarantee you, by the way, that there were scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees and probably even some Herodians who actually really loved God and were pursuing him with the best they knew how. We see that in the scripture. Joseph of Arimathea, the unnamed scribe in this text. Nicodemus. Men who were actually pursuing God using the best systems they had in front of them at the time. And Jesus is not saying this to them, right? He tells the scribe, you're not far. But man, we have to acknowledge that we can choose to hide an empty religion if we want to. We can choose to box check and make this our little social circle where we get our feel goods. I'm just telling you guys, you don't want that for yourself. You don't want that. You don't want a life that terminates on yourself. I know you think you do, because I think I do, because I hear that voice in my head over and over and over and over, and everything in our world is designed to point you there. But I'm just telling you, it's not true. Your life doesn't terminate on yourself. This universe does not revolve around you. There is a king to this universe, and his name is Christ. And he is reigning at the right hand of God. And everything in this creation will one day bow its knee and speak his name on its tongue. Everything terminates on him. Comes back to him. Now I'm just going to tell you guys this because I'm telling myself this. If we enter into a space like this for any reason over and above the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have missed it. We've missed the whole point of this thing. And I'm going to say this. That is you. You need to be aware of the mortal peril of your soul. Because that is not the kingdom of God. Self-worship is not the kingdom of God. And it is not acceptable Christ. It's not good enough. And I know right now you're going, Pastor, you're not supposed to say that. It's true. That is sin to be repented of. And if that makes us feel bad, if that like triggers something in your story with like self-hatred and insecurity, I'm sorry. But it's still true. We need to fall on our face in repentance before God because he's worthy of it. And because, catch this, he's crazy about you. He's madly in love with you. He's not angry at you for making it about you. He is heartbroken for you because you are missing out on the design that he intends for you. 
C.S. Lewis says, it's not that our passions are too great. It's they're too little. He says we are far too easily satisfied. When we seek to worship ourselves, when we seek to co-op the worship of the one true reigning God to make our lives more comfortable, when we seek to hide our blatant sin and hypocrisy and evil under the guise of religious language and practice, it says we are like those who want to keep sitting in the slums eating mud because we cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at sea. Guys, Jesus has something better for you. He's worthy of your actual worship. He's worthy of setting aside what is better for you. He's worthy of your sacrifice. Those words in Luke are heavy. I get that. That call is intense and it's scary. I get that. A woman giving her last, literally last pieces of money to buy food and pay rent on because she loves God and trusts him to care for her is scary. I get it. I'm with you. I am weak and I am sinful and I love myself a lot. I get it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you the kingdom is worth it. I'm telling you the person of Jesus is worth it. It is worth casting off your desires to submit to him in obedience. It is worth rejecting pleasures now for his glory. Guys, it is worth it to pick up your cross and follow him. To say, the cross before me and the world behind me, it is worth it. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, whatever the heck lies in your head, telling you that something in this world, that substance, that relationship, that sin, that decision, whatever the heck voice is in your head telling you that that is better, I'm telling you it's a lie. Christ is better. Submission to him is better. Repentance from sin is better. I promise you. Cross now and crown later. Come on. It is a light and momentary affliction that prepares us for eternity with the king of the universe. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end our time by reading this psalm. Jesus mentions here. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to read this psalm and I just want to open up in that moment of time for us to engage in some prayer. Jesse and Kim will be on the edges of the room. Our pastors are scattered around. If you need to just have someone pray out loud over you, I would encourage you to grab one of them. Grab one of our pastors. If Spirit is leading you to pray over this church, Come grab the mic and do it. We're going to take a few minutes and actually be honest with God about where our heart is at. I want you to take a few minutes. And I know like even as I'm saying this right now, some of you are used enough to this part of our liturgy that you're already like zoning out and thinking about lunch. I want you to hear this. Take a few minutes and be confessional to the God of the universe. Tell him with honesty, how little regard you actually have for his glory. Tell him with honesty 
how much you actually pursue your own comfort and your own desires above holiness and above obedience to him. Come to him in actual confession. Tell him the exact lie you're believing. The thing that you think is better than him. Maybe even speak that lie out loud to someone else. Let them pray the gospel over you. So I'm going to read this. And I'm going to give us some time to engage and be honest with our Jesus. Because he meets us in our confession. And he is patient and he is loving for us. Amen? Psalm 110 says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter so you rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Beloved, hear that the Lord has sworn. He will not change his mind. This is reality. Christ is reigning. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Beloved, Christ is king and he is reigning and his victory is sure. The Lord has made up his mind. This is reality. And you are invited into that kingdom. Do not believe the lies that tell you otherwise. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.